we've been talking about Calvinism, right? Calvinism. Now, what's the word that we use that describes Calvinism? Daniel? Tulip. Tulip, that's right. T-U-L-I-P. Okay. Now, last week we talked about T. What does T stand for? Jenna? Right, total depravity. Or total depravity or what else? Total inability. Okay, total depravity or total inability. Because I think everyone who's a Christian would agree that at one point in time, every single person in the world was totally depraved. In other words, they totally were sinful in and of themselves. Everything they did was selfishness or for themselves. But really, the, the heart of total depravity for Calvinism is total inability, which means that each person in the world is born without the ability uh, to repent, without the ability to trust in Jesus. Basically, you're not born with a free will. That's what it comes down to. Okay. Now, what's the thing that's so closely tied in with total depravity? It's called original... Original sin. That's right. You, you were about to say it there, Jenna. Original sin. Okay. Now, everybody's sin is original. Okay. But what original sin teaches is that Adam's sin, what Adam and Eve did in the garden, affects us in a way that when you're born, you are born a sinner. You have this sin stuff inside of you. And, you know, and the Calvinists would call it a sinful nature. And the word sinful in nature, I never put together anywhere in any Greek or, or Hebrew manuscripts. Okay, it's something they just came up with. Okay, it's just the flesh is all it is. But they'd say you're born with original sin, and that what Adam and Eve did in the garden affects you in a negative way. In other words, you're a sinner. You sin because you're a sinner. But we say you're a sinner because you sin. Now, who can tell me what sin is? Daniel? All the bad things we do. All the bad things we do. That's a very simplistic way, but that's correct. First uh, John 3, 4 gives us a good definition of sin. It says, sin is transgression of the law. Whatever God says you shouldn't do, and you don't do it, that is sin. Or whatever God tells you you should do, and then you don't do it, that is sin. So sin is a bad choice. You're correct. It's a bad choice. Okay, It's not a mistake. Uh, it's not an oops. It's a willful decision you make against the knowledge you have. Okay, so it's original sin. So they don't believe that that uh, there's an age of accountability. Um, they don't believe that sin's a choice. They believe sin is some stuff inside you, which leads to the bad choices. Okay. Now, what, what the Bible we found the Bible teaches is that we have this thing called flesh. You can kind of see it here. It's what you're. What you're made in, what, you're, what you're, your soul and your spirit is, is in right now is, is the flesh. But the flesh may tempt you uh, to do certain things. Uh, like, for example, I, I use the example of eating. We all like to eat. We're all born with the desire to eat. We need to eat to live. Basically, we need to eat to live. But can you use that desire to eat in the wrong way? Yes. Yes. Yes, you can. Okay. And, uh, you know... So, so we, we, you can use it to the wrong way. You can use it to overeat and be a glutton. And gluttony would be a sin. Okay? And, and let me just define gluttony. Gluttony is when you eat to the point where you, you, you affect your health in a negative way. That's the way I would define it anyway. 
because the world said you're supposed to weigh this much, and I don't think the world system is right. They want you to look like a model. You know, you see that's that's anorexic in my opinion. But anyway, um, you know that that's a way you can use your fleshy desires in the wrong way. You know, all of us have the the fleshy desire to drink, but if you use it to go out and get drunk on alcohol, that's using it in the wrong way. Okay, so the two ways that, that flesh can hurt you, or another way would be, um, example I've heard used a lot is if you know if someone is does drugs while they're pregnant with their baby, their baby is born with a desire for those drugs. Okay, but it, those desires aren't sin in itself. And that's a lot of times where Calvinists get off track. They think that the desire to do something wrong equals sin, but having temptation isn't sin, because Jesus was tempted in all points just as we are, yet was without sin. Okay, that's a little overview of total depravity. Not going to get into it too deep. We can go on to that all day. But we talked. We heard that there is an age of accountability. Uh, that everyone is not born hellbound. That babies are not sinners. Okay, and when you come to a point of accountability, of knowledge of what is right and wrong, and then you willfully choose to do wrong, then you become a sinner. And it's going to be different for each person. You know, Hebrew culture is around twelve, thirteen. But today we're talking about you. Okay. Me. No, not you. <laughs> you. We're going to talk about you today. Does anyone remember what you stands for? You stands for unconditional election. Unconditional election. Okay? Unconditional election, to put it in human terms, would be like, you know, the presidential elections come up soon, and we all, if you're old enough, you get to vote for who you want to be in office. And it'd be like your vote meaning nothing. It's rigged. Okay, it's rigged, yeah. It's, you know, we've heard that the last couple of president elections, and it could be true for all we know. But, you know, it'd be like you going to vote for Ron Paul. Go, Ron Paul. And it'd be like voting for him. And, and uh, it doesn't matter what you vote. If Ron Paul got all the votes in the United States, he still wouldn't be able to be president because it's already been rigged that Barack Obama is going to be president. It's going to turn into a Muslim nation. Okay, so uh, that's just a little joke on the side there, but, but that's what unconditional election is like. Okay, and to give you an idea, unconditional election basically says that God, before you are born, before the worlds were made, He determined which one of us is going to heaven to be with Him for all eternity, and which one of us is going to hell. No matter what you do, you have no choice in the matter. That's what unconditional election teaches. It's basically called uh, fatalism or determinism. You have no control over your destiny. You have no choice in the matter. There is no such thing as free will. Free will is just a, a figment of your imagination. Your mind is living in a matrix world because it's just something you made up in your own head. You have, in fact, every single thing you do, including the sins you do, every person that's been raped, every person, that, every baby that's been uh, aborted, uh, every murder that's been done was part of God's plan. He wanted those things to happen. And so that's basically what it breaks down to. Okay. And to kind of give you a history of, of unconditional election, um, it started with a group called the Gnostics. We talked about the Gnostics a little bit last week. The word Gnostic is spelled G, G silent, N-O-S-T-I-C-S. Gnostics. Now, these are the people who came with total depravity, too. They taught that, that the flesh itself is evil. But your skin, is, your flesh isn't evil. It may tempt you to do certain things that are evil, but in itself is not evil. So they taught that flesh is evil, and that's why they would say that Jesus, because he didn't sin, he was not really in the flesh. Okay, He was just spirit. It just looked like he was in the flesh. And what First John said about that, the epistle of First John, is that they were heretics. 
Because I said that they were false teachers for saying that. That that was a lie. And that anyone who believed that was already damned. Okay? So Gnostics came up with this idea of unconditional election, or fatalism, or determinism, that we have no choice in the matter, and that God is already chosen who's going to enter heaven and who's going to enter hell. But, you know, Gnostics in the early church time, the first 300, 400 years of the church, they were considered wrong. People said they were wrong. There's no way we're going to agree with you. And then along came a guy named Augustine. Augustine was around the beginning of the 5th century, the very end of the 4th century, around 400 AD he came into the world. Now it's about 1,600 years ago. This guy came in, and guess what? He used to be a part of the Gnostics before he became a Christian. He's part of this, the, the Manichaean sect. And he came in, and he, he made tea acceptable to the church, and he also made unconditional election very acceptable to the people around him. He was a very eloquent speaker. He can convince people very quickly. Now, let me ask you a question, kids. If, if a speaker's up in front of you, and he's a really good speaker, maybe he's funny, and he's very eloquent, very powerful speaker, but he's telling lies, is it possible that people might end up believing what he says? Yeah. Adolf Hitler. If you all are learning about history, you learn about Adolf Hitler. Now, listen to what one of his quotes was. He said, if you tell a lie long enough, often enough, and loud enough, people will believe it. He said they're more willing to believe a big lie than a small lie. Adolf Hitler convinced millions of Germans that Jews needed to be exterminated, and six million Jews lost their lives because of it. And uh, Augustine convinced a lot of people that unconditional election is scriptural. And now we have millions upon millions upon millions of Christians who are deceived into believing that, you know, God just picked me before the foundation of the world. I didn't have any free will involved in it. He, he, you know, he, he granted me repentance and gave me the ability, you know, the ability to repent. He gave me, you know, all these things that they say that the scripture says it doesn't really say. And we're going to look at it today. Okay? Um, let me read to you uh, some things that I have this little pamphlet here. Uh, the early church fathers and predestination. Let me read you some things that were said. In Henry Chadwick's book, The Early Church, uh, it says this. The Gnostics placed the natural order at so vast a distance in moral value the, from the supreme God the influence of fatalistic ideas drawn from popular astrology and magic became fused with notions derived from the language from Paul's epistles and predestination to produce a rigidly deterministic scheme. Redemption was from destiny, not from the consequences of responsible action, and was granted to a predetermined amount of people in whom alone was the divine spark. And, it, and it, later on down this pamphlet, it says this, it says... Uh, uh, that the early church fathers concluded three things. Okay, Three recurrent themes are found in the early fathers' teachings. One, uh, the rejection of free will, the idea that no one has free will, is from the heretics. That was one thing they came to conclusion to. That's one thing that's recurrent throughout the early church writings. Number two is, free will is a gift given to man by God. For nothing can ultimately be dependent, independent of God. And number three... Man possesses free will because he is made in God's image, and God himself has free will. Okay? That's, that's a good little pamphlet to pick up to get a chance to for you adults out there who want to pick that up. So I'm going to look at three different words here today. Okay? Three words that I think are very important in this whole issue. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding what these words mean. The first word is foreknowledge. And there's different uh, people who have diff come to different conclusions of what foreknowledge means. 
Let me say what it doesn't mean. Foreknowledge does not mean that God picks and chooses he'll be saved. Okay? It doesn't mean that God is arbitrary and man has no free will. Now here's something that could mean. It's a possible meaning for us. Not what I think it means, but it's possible. Uh, the classic Arminian position is that God knows everything that's ever going to happen in the future. Okay? And because he has this exhausted foreknowledge, he sees it all kind of like a, you know, it's like this, this timeline. You guys are studying history. You have a timeline, and he's looking at the whole timeline all the way to the end of the world and sees everything that's going to happen. Okay? Um, so it couldn't, foreknowledge couldn't mean that. It couldn't mean that God knows everything that's going to happen before time. In other words, God knows who will choose to repent and trust in Jesus and who won't. Because he knows all of time, everything that will ever happen. He knows in here who will choose him and who will not. Okay? But let me tell you what I think foreknowledge actually means. Let me give you an analogy. Let's say I was talking about this earlier tonight. Let's, let's say me and Angela, we decided that tonight we're going to go out and we got a babysitter somehow. I don't know how we do that, but somehow we got a babysitter. <laughs> And uh, we decided we were going to go out to eat. We'll get some dessert together. Okay? And the main angel have been married for almost seven years now. And we dated for, well, we knew each other for about four months before we got married. So it's been over seven years now that we've known each other. Okay? And Angela, when we get to the restaurant, she has to use the restroom. The waiter comes to the table, and I know we don't have much time. We don't want to pay the babysitter too much. So I'm going to order her drink, and I'm going to order her dessert right now. We've already eaten dinner. We're not hungry for dinner. And I know that her favorite dessert is chocolate cheesecake. So I say, you know what? I'm going to order her a water with lemons. That's one of the drinks she always gets at a restaurant. I, I know that from what I've seen in the past. And I'm going to order her a chocolate cheesecake. And by the time she gets back to the table, uh, she says, oh, honey, you, you ordered my favorite stuff. Thank you so much. You, 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 you're, you're, oh, and coffee's after dessert, though, of course. Not, not, not during dessert. So, and she wants six creamers in her coffee. But, but the fact that I can say these things... It's not because I can look into the future and say, well, that's, that's what Angel would want to have if she was sitting at this table picking for herself. It's because I know from past experience what my wife likes, what her favorite drink is, what her favorite dessert is, okay? That she likes coffee with lots of creamer in it. They have to say, well, you want some coffee with that creamer. You know, th those are things I know about her. So I foreknow a lot of things about her so I can make a prediction uh, of what she would want to have if we were sitting and having dessert. Okay? And that's what I think foreknowledge means here. Okay? In the same way, God knows men's hearts, for he had searched them. Okay? And I want to give you some examples of this. Let's turn to Acts chapter 26. And the word, the Greek word for foreknowledge is pro gnosko. So you say it's all Greek to me. But that's that's the Greek word for foreknowledge, pro gnosko. Okay? So let's look at Acts chapter 26. We'll start in verse 4. Alright, and it says this. This is this is Paul talking here to uh, to Agrippa. He's trying to defend himself. He says in verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first. There's the word prognosco. They knew me from the first. Okay? If they were willing to testify that according to the strict sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Now this is talking about human beings having prognosco. Human beings having 
foreknowledge. Now, as a human being, do you know everything that's going to happen in the future? No. All it's saying here is that these Jews knew about Paul's former life. They foreknew about him. They knew that he was from the strictest sect of the Pharisees. And he lived according to their religion, the strictest he possibly could. A human being could. He was very devout to being a Pharisee. Okay, So it's not saying that human beings have knowledge of the future. It's saying that they foreknew about him. They knew about him from before. Let's turn to uh, Romans chapter 11. And we'll start in verse 1. So the, the point of, of foreknowledge so far that I'm trying to get at, what I think it means is that before the situation came up, I, the person knows about the past. Okay? Now let's look in uh, verse 1 of Romans 11. It says this. I say then, this is Paul again, as God, not cast, as God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Okay. Now, before I, I, I started researching these things, I used to believe that this verse, I'd isolate this verse, take it by itself, not read it in context, and say, look, God doesn't cast people away that he foreknew. He doesn't, no one can lose their salvation because God doesn't cast them away because he foreknew them. He foreknew them before time began. Okay. But look what it's saying here is that, I say then, has God cast away his people? Now, who is God's people? Daniel, what do you want to say? Um, Christians. Christians now, but what he's talking about here, what do you think, Jenna? Yeah, he's talking about Israel here. See, he says right here, I said that has God cast away people? Certainly not. And then he says, for I am also an Israelite. Okay, So he's a Jew, and he says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Now what he's talking about here is that, that God does not push Israel away if they want to be saved. Because what Paul's saying here is, look, I'm a Jew. I repented of my sins. I trusted in Jesus. So, Obviously, God's not pushing away all his people. They're pushing themselves away. They're not willing to heed the truth. They're not willing to repent of their idolatry, their view of God. Okay, so it's not saying, it's not talking about God foreknowing something in the future. Okay, it's talking about people who he knew beforehand. Okay, he knew. I mean, the Old Testament talks about the Jews, the Israelites. They were his chosen people. Okay, all right, let's go to one more scripture, Romans chapter 8. I'm sorry, before you go forward. Sure. Uh, in looking at verse 2, it says people which he foreknew, knew about them beforehand. Right. Um, it goes on in verse 3, uh, it says, Lord, they have killed your thy prophets. Mm-hmm. And so if it's that way that he's picked them, um, why were they killing his prophets? Right. Why would he pick someone who would kill his prophets? Right. If he really loves his prophets, why would he pick them to people who would actually kill his prophets? He knew about it ahead of time. That's right. It's a good point. Contradicts the whole position. Right, exactly. All right, let's look at Romans chapter 8, and we'll start at verse 28. It'd be like saying, you know, I knew, I foreknew Kerrigan from the Dallas boot camp. <laughs> there you go. I mean, that, that's when we met. That's when we met at the Dallas boot camp. But, you know, the, you didn't know him before then. No, I, I foreknow you now. Yeah, yeah, you foreknow me now. So, so, uh, so let's, let's, let's read in verse, in verse 28. Okay, and, I, and after we read verse 28, 29, and 30, I want you to see the context of this of this, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to purpose. 
Not his purpose, his is added there, just to let you know that. To purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Okay? So verse 28, let me just give you a little revision of, of verse 28 first before we go any further. According to his purpose, the word his is added there. It's not in the Greek. And, and the and translators added there because they thought it was, it was the right place to add. They think it's talking about God's purpose. Okay? But it's really talking about the person's displayed uh, intent or displayed purpose. That uh, they're called because God sees that they want to be with him. Okay, but I want to see here is, is whom he foreknew. Now, what did he foreknow about them? Did this foreknew so that he knew them before time began? They loved God. Yeah, they love God. Okay, that, that's good. But but how does God know that he that they love him? Now, I want you to go back to uh, to verse. Let's go to verse, verse twenty three. Okay, verse twenty three says this. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. The hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So he's talking about these people uh, who eagerly are waiting for the hope of redemption with perseverance. In other words, they're living holy. They're living pure. Eagerly waiting for the hope that's going to come. And this is how he knows. Look at verse 27. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is. Now the spirit, the word spirit there might be capitalized for you, but it doesn't have to be capitalized. It really, in the Greek, should be talking about the human spirit. Okay. So now he who search, now he who searches the Holy Spirit in verse 26 searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the spirit is. Okay. So the reason God foreknew them is because He searched their heart. He searched their heart and said, "I can see these people are eagerly waiting." In perseverance for the adoption, the redemption of their bodies. To be redeemed by us. Redeemed by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That, that's what he's saying. That, that's, what they, that's what he foreknew. He foreknew that's what they were doing. And that's why they were predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Okay, so because he saw those things, because he searched their hearts and he saw those things, he foreknew their hearts. Not saying he foreknew them before time began. That's reading into it. That's not what it says there. Okay. So prognosco, the word foreknowledge. Uh, what we've seen in at least three scriptures is that it doesn't always mean knowing, you know, in eternity past what's going to happen in the future. And, and getting to the future and the reality of the future is another discussion to talk about altogether. But I need to touch on it a little bit during the situation. Okay. So the first one we're looking at is foreknowledge. The second one we look at is the word chosen. Okay, why don't you turn to uh, Exodus 14, and we'll get there in a minute. So next we're going to look at is chosen. And it's the Greek word, eklektos. Okay. All right. Now, the word eklektos can mean different things. But what, it, what I believe it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean chosen as in picked out. Like if I gave all you children a choice to go, uh, these different desserts we have here today, different snacks, and I say, well, go pick which one you want. Some of you would choose the banana bread, some of you would choose the puppy chow, some of you would choose neither. Okay? 
But that would be a choice. That'd be a picking out of what you want. But the word eclectos doesn't necessarily mean picked out, but means precious or a chosen jewel. If, if I go to a jewelry store and, you know, if, if I were to shop for an engagement ring or something like that, uh, I'd look at, like, the color, the clarity, the cut, you know, the, everything like that. If there was little pieces of coal still in it, and the ones that were the shiniest, the ones that were the clearest, the ones that had the best cut, they'd be the chosen diamonds, the chosen ones. They were precious, okay? And, and just so you know, in the Greek language, there's other words that could be better used to describe being picked out, okay? One of them is habertizo uh, or eklego. Uh, they are better words to convey the idea of picking something out. So if that's what God was really trying to say in some of the scriptures we're going to go through, he surely would have used some of those verses. Okay. Now, the reason we went to the Old Testament, the Old Testament you have in your English Bibles has been translated from Hebrew. Okay. But there's a Greek version of the Old Testament that's called the Septuagint. Septuagint just means 70 because tradition says that was translated from 70 different translators. Okay. Now, in the Old Testament, the word eklektos, the Greek word as translated as chosen, appears 81 times in the Greek Old Testament. 81 times. And all of those times, out of all those times, 81 times, it's only used once in the sense where we're picking out. Every other time, all the other 80 times, it is used in the sense of chosen, precious, excellent, and choice. Okay, it's used in that sense. So if the Old Testament, using this word 81 times, okay, only one time, use it in the sense of being picked out, then why would we switch from that whole scheme of things and then go to the New Testament and use it every single time to mean picked out? That's not real consistent. Because you know, in the Greek language, like I said, there's other words that could be used if they really wanted to convey the meaning of being picked out. Okay, so let's look at Exodus 14. And verse 7. I want to give you some examples of, of us seeing uh, the word eclectos used in another way besides being picked out. So Exodus 14, 7 says this. Also he took 600 choice chariots. And all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. So this is, this is the, the Pharaoh who's going to go after the, the Jews. He let them go. But now he's going after me, saying, I want the choice, the best chariots we have. Okay? So that, that's, that's one example of the word eclectos being used as choice. Let me give you another example. Let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 19 and verse And it says, uh, by your messengers you have reproached the Lord, and said, by the multitude of my chariots I have come to the heights of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I have went through the extremity of its borders to its fruitful forest. Okay? So here we have two examples. Let's go to one more example. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 28. Twenty-eight and verse sixteen it says this: it "says Therefore, 
Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. So here's just three, I mean, there's most of, I mean, I could use all 80 examples if I wanted to, but these are just three examples of them using the word eclectos, the Greek word eclectos, to mean choice or precious or excellent. It doesn't always mean chosen. In fact, in the Old Testament, if we go just by the Old Testament, the Greek version, it almost never means chosen as in picked out. Okay? Um, and, then, and then there's some, some texts, if we were to go into the New Testament and look at some of those texts, where they translate as chosen or picked out, we can see that if we change it to, to mean excellent or, or choice or precious, here's maybe what we come up with. Okay? Uh, for, just listen, for example, from Matthew 20, 16. Uh, most of you may know this. It says, many are called, but few are chosen. But if we were to take that word chosen not to mean picked out, but to mean choice or precious or excellent, it would maybe read like this. Many are called, but few are fit for it. Okay, many are called, but few are fit for it, which is true. Not many are fit for the kingdom. Okay, you need to count the cost. Take up your cross, deny yourself daily, and follow me. Not many are fit for that. Uh, and then First Peter two nine. Uh, but you are a quality generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Okay, a quality generation. You're not just the, the run-of-the-mill people, because the run-of-the-mill people, they go off and live the way they want to live. They live for themselves. If he's talking about a people who will live for God, who will choose to live for God. And then 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, it says this, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the good angels. Sounds about right to me. The bad angels, what happened to them? They forsook God's rule. I mean, the leader of the bad angels said, I will ascend to the high, I will be like God. And they, and they followed Satan, they followed Lucifer, you know, and they were kicked out of heaven. Okay, but the good angels, they stayed there. Now let's look at some of the proof texts. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll look at some of these uh, proof texts that he used. And, and what, I, what I want you to see here is, you know, I don't proclaim to have all the answers. But I'm going to tell you this, is that when, when it comes down to you, Calvinists have these certain scriptures, a couple of different passages of scriptures, and they'll say, well, this is what it has to mean. And all the rest of the Bible is interpreted in light of their own interpretation of these certain scriptures. It's like the beginning point for them. You know, but it, like, the, like the hermeneutic principle goes, you interpret unclear verses in light of clear verses. And something is unclear, then you can interpret different ways. And that's what I, I want to show you with some of these scriptures. Ephesians 1, we'll start in verse 3. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be, with, be holy and without blame before him in love. Okay? Uh, and you know, one of the reasons people have a problem with these verses is because of what Peter says about Paul's scripture. He says, uh, Peter says about Paul's scripture, he says, um, Talking about Paul, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand. So Paul sometimes, Peter himself is saying, and inspired by, he said, some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. Which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scripture. Now I'm saying that all Calvinists have twisted to their own destruction. Because I don't think all Calvinists are going to hell, but I'm going to tell you this is that. 
they take these certain scriptures and say, well, this is what it means. That way, the rest of scripture has to go with what this means, the meaning of this verse is. Okay, but as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Okay, now, what I want you to see here, and really we can go down through verse 12, we're going to see that it's not talking about individual specific people here. It's talking about a group. Okay, in verse 3, you see the word our. In verse, uh, and they see the word us. In verse 4, you see us and we. In verse 5, you see us and sons, plural. In verse 6, you see us. In verse 7, you see we. In verse 8, you see us. In verse 9, you see us. In verse 11 and 12, you see we. It's talking about a group of people. It's not talking about guys specifically, individually picking out certain people to be saved and certain people not to be saved. It's talking about a group of people. Okay? And the group of people, this is one of the characteristics they'll have found in verse 4. That they will be holy and without blame before him in love. That'll be one of their characteristics. And, and then in, uh, if you go to 2 and verse 10, chapter 2 and verse 10 of Ephesians, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand they should walk in them. So God prepared that whoever would come to him, that they should walk in good works. Okay, so they'll be holy, they'll be without blame, they'll be before him in love, they'll be walking in good works, because that's the way his chosen people will be. And that's, what God, that's the people God has chosen. God has chosen the people who will live like this, who will walk like this. He's chosen the people that will be holy and without blame before him in love. Okay? So chosen, first of all, doesn't always mean chosen as not picked out. But when it is used in certain times, like in the Ephesians 1 passage we just read, when it does mean chosen as not picked out, it doesn't mean individuals. It doesn't mean specific people. It means a group of people. This is the type of people I'm looking for. I mean, take, for example, the Jews. They were God's chosen people. But are all the Jews saved? No, some of them have rejected God. So even some of the people that God has chosen, they, they, he, I picked this group of people, the Jews. I've chosen them. Not all of them are going to be saved. And then we find out later on that he's chosen to save the Gentiles as well. But not all Gentiles are saved either. Yeah, so... And then, the th- so that's the second word is chosen. Uh, the third word is predestination. Okay? Predestination. Well, let's talk about what it, it doesn't mean that God predetermines specific individuals to heaven or hell. We just talked about that. That before each person is born, their fate is already sealed by God. And it also doesn't mean that God favors some people over others and is arbitrary. Okay? Now, if God favored certain people over others, what would you think about it? Who's unfair, right? I mean, kids, what would you think if your parents uh, favored Daniel over the rest of the kids? They treated him a lot better than they hugged him, they spent time with him. They treated him differently than they treated the rest of the kids. Would you think your parents loved you guys as much as they loved Daniel? No, you wouldn't. That'd be called favoritism. And what we're going to see is that, is that the, the you, or predestination, their, their understanding of that, the Calvinist understanding of that, teaches that God favors some people over others for no good reason at all. Okay? Uh, what it could mean, and this is what the Arminians believe, it could mean that, that God has predestined according to foreknowledge. Okay? In other words, if God does know the future exhaustively, that he's predestined those who he's already saw will pick him. Okay? That's, that's, it could mean that. But what I think it means is this. That God has predestined a certain group of people or a certain type of person. That he predestines nations. Remember, you're looking for a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation. So God's predestining nations. Okay? 
And really, he wants someone from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Okay? He wants people who will love him and obey him freely. Not because they have to, but because they want to. He wants all to be saved, but all aren't being saved. Conditional predestination to salvation of individuals is, is, is not found in the Bible. Okay? So let's, we already looked at Romans 8. And it says in Romans 8, uh, could we turn back to that real quick, Romans 8, 28. And it says in Romans 8, 29, it says, For whom he foreknew, we already talked about how he foreknew, because he searched their heart, and saw they were eagerly waiting for the adoption, for the redemption of them. For those he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, if we stop there, we can make predestined mean whatever we want it to mean. But what does it say he predestined him for? To be conformed to the image of his son. That's what he predestines everyone for. He wants everyone to be like his son. But unfortunately, everyone will be like his son. They've chosen not to be. Okay? Uh, Ephesians 1 4, we're going to look at that passage. Uh, he's, he's predestining a certain type of person, a certain type of people. And then in Romans 9, chapters 9 through 11, you can read it through on your own time, Romans 9 through 11, I want you to read through with an open view, thinking about like this, that, that what Paul is trying to say in Romans 9 through 11 is that God hasn't predestined certain people like Jacob or Esau, okay? He's predestined groups of people, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. Because the argument from the Jews there, the hypothetical argument that Paul was bringing up was, uh, well, we have, the Jews would say, but we have the law, we are God's chosen people. The salvation doesn't belong to the Gentiles, it belongs to us. And they're being very selfish about it. But God wanted the whole world to be saved. And the Jews didn't like that. In fact, the Jews would go around trying to get people who, who Paul would convert, Gentiles who would convert to, to Christianity, he tried to get them to be circumcised so they can be Jewish. But it's not about being Jewish, it's about loving God and serving Him. Okay? Now I'm going to look at, give you some scriptures that we're going to look at. and just I'm just going to go through these pretty quickly. And you can sit there and listen, or you can, you can go through them if you want, but I'm going to go through them pretty quick. And you're going to see that Scripture is clearly against unconditional election. Clearly against you. Okay? Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 3 and 4. And the first idea I'm, I'm going to express here from the Scripture is that God wants everyone to be saved. Not the specific people or individuals that He's picked out before time. He wants everyone to be saved. Okay? 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 3. And listen to what it says. It says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. This is good and acceptable. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then we can go, you can go in a couple more verses. It says, For there is one God and one media between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And this is talking about the L a little bit. Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So God wants all to be saved. Then we can turn to 2 Peter three nine, and it says that the the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering or patient towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Now I was talking about Christ coming back before right before that verse. And it's saying, really, the reason he hasn't come back yet because he's patient with people who haven't come to him yet. He's waiting for people to come to him. He doesn't want to send them to hell. He doesn't want them to perish. He wants them to come to repentance. Okay? And then we can look at uh, Matthew chapter 23. 
23 and verse 37. Now, this is Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son in the flesh, talking. And he says, uh, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stoned those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you, your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Now, you were not willing to go against the eye later on. But the fact that Jesus wanted to gather them, the ones who didn't want to be gathered. They kill, they kill people. They kill the people he sends them to preach the message to them. But he still wants them to come anyway. But they refuse to. So it's not a matter of whether God wants everyone to be saved or not, because he wants all to be saved. He even wants those to be saved who are wicked people. That's why the Bible says God died the just for the unjust. He died for his enemies on the cross. And then we all know John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. I mean, does he really love the world? Or does he just love just a little part of the world? Maybe the world means the world of, of the Christians. He loves everybody. He wants all to be saved. But what Calvinists do, they'll say, well, because they have this presupposition that God only picks certain people to be saved, they'll change these words like world and all to mean something they really don't mean. But with a plain reading of Scripture, I mean, they'll even say in 2 Peter 3.9 that the context there is always talking about the elect there. It's not talking about uh, non-Christians. It's talking about the Christians there. But no, it's not. If you really read the context there, he talks about those who, who would say that, that where, where is the coming? There's mockers and scoffers in the last day. Where is this coming? And he's saying, well, I want them to be saved too. The mockers and scoffers. The one who, who say, well, where is this coming? Okay? So God wants all to be saved. He loves all. And then he has no desire for the wicked to perish. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 18. Now, we looked at one part of Ezekiel 18 last week. Uh, but this time we're looking at a couple of different verses after the spots looked at last week. Okay? Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 23. Now, now if... if if God has determined before time began, before he created the world, who is going to be saved and who isn't, wouldn't God therefore take pleasure in his own plan? I mean, God's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he knows everything there is to know, he's, all, he's, he's smart, he's infinite in wisdom. If, if he made a choice, you'd think he'd take pleasure in his own choices, right? So God, if God has chosen certain people to be damned or go to hell, and certain people not to be damned or go to heaven, then surely he would take pleasure in that. It's his own choices. Why would he not take pleasure in his own choices? He wouldn't have made them in the first place, right? Okay, so Ezekiel, and, and that's arguing from their uh, point of view, of course. Ezekiel 18 and verse 23 says this. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? And then down in verse 32, it says this. This is God speaking. For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. See, God doesn't take any pleasure in that. Because it goes against his will. Everything that's for God's will, that's, that's agreeing with his will, he takes pleasure in it. But he doesn't take pleasure in things that go against his will. Now, there's an abundance of scriptures that talk about how God doesn't show favor to him. I want to just highlight a couple of them for you. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10. I'll give you a couple from the Old Testament, a couple from the New Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 17. It says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. God doesn't show partiality. 
God doesn't take bribes. God wants all to be saved. He doesn't. Well, I, I'm going to have John McLuhan be saved, but, but Kerrigan Skelly, no, I, I don't want him to be saved. He gives everyone an opportunity. Everyone has enough knowledge to be damned. And for some people who, who obey that knowledge they have, he'll give them more knowledge so they can be saved in the end, if they shall choose to be saved. They choose to repent and trust in Jesus. Now let's turn to Job 34. Job 34 and then verse 19. This is talking about God. It says, Yet he is not partial to princes, nor does he regard the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. And that's, the, that's the question here. You know, if God created the person, he knitted them together in his mother's womb, why would he like one part of his work over another part of his work? If it had, no, if it had nothing to do with the way they act, nothing to do with, with how they use their free will, it's just a matter he created them. He said, well, I like this person better. It's like, I like this creation better than that part of my creation. It doesn't make any sense. That's not the way God, God doesn't show favoritism. Okay? All right, let's turn to uh, Romans chapter 2. Giving you kids a workout. It's turning all the scriptures, huh? Yeah, if you, uh, if you do sword drill, we call them sword drills, you say Romans chapter 2, verse this, and you say, what do we say? Charge. Then, oh, and it's kind of fun, too, you know, even for the adults. <laughs> you give us the verse, and then whoever gets it, whoever gets there first says the first word and stands up and reads it. It's kind of fun. Just the future. Cool. Cool. Okay, so Romans 2 and verse 5. But, <laughs> uh, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up wrath for yourself. Wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who render each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance or perseverance and doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish, and every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Romans 2.11. No partiality with God. Seems pretty clear to me. First, God's accusing them for doing wickedly, and then He's going to punish each one according to their deeds, not according to Adam and Eve's deeds, or according to God's deeds, because God made them that way, but according to their own deeds. They have the ability to perform those things rightly, which they did not perform rightly. So there's no part. Let's turn. To, let's get a, one more verse about partiality. Let's turn to turn to James. James chapter two. In verse 9. Now this is, this, is, uh, this is James talking to, to, pe to people who are living wrongly. Okay, now I want, I want you to watch what he calls them here. Okay? He says, but if you show partiality, if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So does God obey some kind of different law than human beings obey? I mean, is God going to call human beings a sinner for being playing favorites, but he's not going to call himself a sinner? 
So really, if, if we're going to say that God plays favorites, we're calling him a sinner now. And we know God doesn't sin. Okay, so so God doesn't God doesn't uh, you know He doesn't play partiality. He, he wants all to be saved. He loves all. And not only that, if if all this is predetermined, you you hear things in the scripture like this: that all heaven rejoices over the sinner who repents. Now, why would all heaven be rejoicing over the sinner who repents if they already knew who was going to repent and who wasn't? Then there would have been a party at the beginning of all the sinners in the future who are going to repent, who they knew were going to repent. Not in the midst of the repenting. But God already knew they would repent. And then we have the fact that the early church was totally against this whole idea. And what I mean by early church, I mean the first 400 years of the church. Let me read you some quotes from them. This is Clement of Alexandria, around 195 A.D. He said this, to obey or not is in our own power, provided we do not have the excuse of ignorance. Unless there's some kind of ignorant fact, we're, we are uh, obeying or not is in our own power. That's why the, the truth is so important. When you preach truth, people are no longer ignorant. Now they have the, they have, because they have the knowledge, they can come to Christ, they've heard the gospel, they can come to him. Okay? Uh, Melito, in around 170 AD, said this, there is therefore nothing to hinder you from changing your evil manner of life because you are a free man. Nothing hinders you. God truly doesn't hinder you. That's what this, this doctrine breaks down to. God wants people to be sinners. That's what this doctrine says. He wants people to be sinners, to be wicked, to live wickedly, and he wants them to go to hell in the end. So to go to hell in, you have to live wickedly, right? As God's predetermined certain people go to hell, they must live wickedly. That means God likes sin. We don't know God abhors sin. He hates sin. In fact, the Bible says he hates sinners. How can he hate what he created himself? With his own two hands. Doesn't make any sense. Justin Martyr, this is a long one, around 160 AD, he said this, We have learned from the prophets, and we hold it to be true, that punishments, chastisements, and good rewards are rendered according to the merits of each man's actions. Now, if this is not so, but all things happen by fate, then neither is anything at all in our own power. For if it is predetermined that this man will be good and that this other man will be evil, neither is the first one meritorious, nor the latter man to be blamed. And again, unless the human race has a power of avoiding evil and choosing good by free choice, they are not accountable for their actions. It's pretty obvious. We talked about that last week. I mean, if you have someone who's mentally retarded, doesn't understand what they're doing, and they go out and do a horrible crime, the court is of our own land because they're based on the Bible. It's based on logic and reason. They will not hold that man accountable for his crimes. Not to the extent they'll hold an adult who has mental capacity accountable. Okay, so uh, here's Methodius. Around 190 AD, he says, God is good and wise. He does what is best. Therefore, there is no fixed destiny. There is no fixed destiny, he said. Seems as clear as can be. These people were, were, were predating Augustine by over 200 years. Before he was even born. And then Ignatius, who was one of the uh, disciples of John the Apostle. He was, he was mentored by him. Okay? He heard him speak over and over again. He said in about 105 AD, he said, When you are desirous to do well, God is also ready to assist you. So not only does God desire for you to do well, but when you choose to finally do well, he's ready and right there willing to assist you. Simple as that. So here's some conclusions we can base off of reading the Bible, looking at history, uh, looking at what the early church believed, what Augustine did, and just using some common sense, too, besides that. 
God created all things in his image. God loves all things. God wants all human beings to be saved. God has given man the gift of free will. Men are not predetermined to go to hell or heaven. That's open according to their own free will. Calvinists act as if these verses we looked at and these ideas of, of foreknowledge, chosen, and predestination, those are the beginning points of Scripture. And everything else must be interpreted in light of that. But as you look at some of the clear verses we looked at today, like 2 Peter 3, 9, 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, they're very clear verses. Talk about how he wants all to be saved. We must make sure we check the translation of the Greek words to make sure it's not meaning chosen as a picked out. We should learn a little bit of Greek. Go back to the Greek and find out what the word actually means. Find out what it's been used like as in the past. To make sure we're being consistent with the rest of Scripture. If, if, if the word chosen always means picked out in the New Testament, it's, it's inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. And it's inconsistent with the way the, verse, the word has been used in the rest of Scripture as well. So we need to make sure we're looking at that. People must choose. God has only predestined a certain type of person, a certain group of people, not individuals. A holy people, a royal priesthood, people who love him, obey him, and persevere until the end. We must choose whether we become part of this group or not. This is what the Bible says, and this is what church history has shown us from the beginning. That man has a free will and he must choose to serve God out of his own free will. Does anyone have any, any questions or anything they want to add? Kids, do you have any questions? You understand that each one of you here, no matter how young you are or even how old you are, that God hasn't determined your fate that you're going to go to heaven or hell. You get to choose for yourself. You must meet the conditions, of course which is repentance, faith, obedience to God, and living your life for him to the end, to be saved. But you, you have the ability to choose. God's given you that gift to choose. But you must choose for yourself. Just because you're raised by Christian parents doesn't mean you're automatically going to become a Christian. You have to choose to be a Christian. You have to choose to live the way that God has called you to live. And if you were born, if you had non-Christian parents, doesn't mean automatically you have to be a non-Christian. I'm the first Christian in my family. The only person who's a Christian in my family is my mother. And so it comes down to God may influence you, he may draw you, he may let you hear the truth, but you must choose for yourself. And, and believe me, as young children, you're hearing the truth more than most children your age are. Most children your age are in Sunday school playing games. Not really learning God's word. Or responsible. Yeah. So it's conditional to become a part of your life and conditional to remain a part of your life. And that's, that's one of the things that when we get to P, I, I, didn't want, I, was, I was real tempted to talk about that a lot today, but when we get to P, you'll see that if, if P is right, you can't be right. If, if God's the one that's picking and choosing who's going to be saved and who isn't, then obviously he's going to keep them. He's chosen them to be saved. God picks them, he's going to keep them. Then otherwise, God's not powerful enough to keep them if he's picking them. But the fact of the matter is there are people who, who will fall away, people who have fallen away, and the scripture talks about for the pardon from the faith being cut off and falling away. So you can't, if P is wrong, you can't be right. Then if 2 is right, then you have to be as well. Because if we don't choose to be sinners, then we can't choose to be converted. Right. And if we don't choose to be converted, then God has to choose for us. So then it's unconditional uh, on, God, on our part, and God chooses 
And then certainly if God chooses and we don't choose, then we can't choose to fall away, so you can't choose to, to not persevere. Right. It, you, what are you going to see? Uh, hopefully you're seeing it all right. As we go through each letter, these things are all intertwined. You can't just believe one of them. What you have in America today, most Baptists believe in P, but none of the rest of it. Just P is all they believe in. They believe in free will. They believe they get to choose who's going to be saved. They believe Jesus died for all. They believe they can resist God's grace. But they believe that you can't lose your salvation. That's what most Baptists believe. That's what I believed for a long time. But well, we've said right here, this case, we've already told them they need to persevere to the end, uh, abiding in Christ and, uh, right. and making right choices to live a life right before the Lord. Right. So just to kind of, because on one hand we say P is not good, and the other hand we say we need to persevere. So I guess maybe we should leave that discussion only for this sake, for, for these guys, because I myself get a little confused about we're supposed to finish, but... Not once saved, always saved kind of thinking. But well, well P, P stands for perseverance and saints, and it means that you will. Right. There's no chance you won't persevere. That's the difference. Yes, you need to persevere to the end, but P states that you will no matter what. Right. But with that idea, and we'll get into a lot more later, but it, it's basically said either you don't have free will anymore or you can live in sin. Right. Neither one of those things are true. So, But they're all intertwined, and, and hopefully... Next, uh, I don't know if we're going to do it next week or not, but a limited atonement, I'm going to talk about the atonement and what the atonement is and what Christ did on the cross. That's where the big misunderstanding is here on the L. So the L is going to talk about what Christ did on the cross and how he makes salvation available to all, um, but it is conditional upon certain things.